Amen. You may be seated. Uh, as you're seated, children, uh, if you are going to Children's Church, uh, can feel free to follow Kobe and Pam. Um, parents, you can feel free to bring your children over uh, with you to the classroom. Turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 6. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark this um, beginning of the winter and now in the spring, and we'll continue um, going through it over the summer. We're looking at Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Mark chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came. When Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Sometimes evil seems to triumph in this world. Recently we've seen mass shootings at an elementary school and at a supermarket. Over the last few months, we've seen brutal images of the war in Ukraine. And of course, most of the horrific events that happen in the world never make the American news. And evil isn't just out there in the news. For some of us, it hits close to home. Maybe you've been the victim of an unjust attack. Maybe it's a loved one who's being mistreated. Maybe you hoped that the legal system would help, 
but so far it hasn't. Maybe you've stood at the grave of a friend who was murdered. This world can get ugly. The story we just read is an ugly story. Mark does not give us the sanitized version. He confronts us with the gory details. Now compared to the rest of Mark, this is an unusual section because Mark is all about who is Jesus and why did Jesus come and what does it mean to follow Jesus but in this section, it's one of only two sections in Mark where Jesus is not the main character. So we might ask, why did Mark include this very ugly story when it's not even directly about Jesus? Well, for one thing, this story is in the Bible because it's true. The Bible is not designed to shelter us from reality. It's designed to confront us with reality, including the reality of evil and sin causing death and destruction in this world. Josephus, a Jewish historian writing in the late first century, also wrote about this event. He wrote about John the Baptist being imprisoned and then executed by Herod. He wrote, Herod put John to death, though John was a good man, and had exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives. You see, this story really happened. It would have been told and retold back in Jesus' time just like some of the ugly but true stories that make the news headlines these days. Now, what are we to take away from this disturbing story? This morning, I want to focus on two things. Number one, this story shows us how evil advances in the world. Number two, this story shows us what to remember when evil seems to triumph. So how evil advances and what we should remember when evil seems to triumph. First, consider how evil advances in this story. Let's consider each of the people who played a role in the execution of John the Baptist, who had done nothing against the law. First, there's Herod. Herod was a people pleaser. Now, mostly, Herod wanted to please himself. That's why verse 17 says he had married Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Again, uh, Josephus, uh, the historian, gives us some more information here. Herod had been married to a woman named Phasaelus. Uh, 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 Herodias had been married to Herod's half-brother. Herod divorced his first wife, and Herodias divorced her first husband so the two of them could get married. Now, John the Baptist, in verse 18, had been saying to Herod all along that this was completely out of bounds. First of all, it was wrong for Herod to divorce his wife and convince someone else to divorce her husband so they could marry one another. Second of all, according to Leviticus, chapter 18, verse 16, if you want the reference, marrying your brother's wife was specifically forbidden. It was seen as a form of incest. So it wasn't even a, a valid kind of marriage. But of course, Herod wanted to please himself, so he didn't change his ways. He listened to what John had to say, but that didn't affect any of his actions. He just went ahead. Now, Herod wanted to please himself, but he also wanted other people to like him too. Herod was ruling over a largely Jewish area, and so he liked to pose 
as a faithful Jew, even though he really had no concern about actually obeying the law, but he would show up on holidays in Jerusalem, at Passover, at the Feast of Tabernacles, sort of at the, the big holidays of the year, to seem to lend his support and perhaps be liked by his subjects. Herod also wanted his peers to like him. Here he throws a birthday party, invites a bunch of his, his peers, and he wants them to be happy. Herod also wanted his stepdaughter to like him. Verse 22, he says to her, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And Herod wanted Herodias to like him. You can see this in verses 19 and 20. Herodias hated John and wanted to get rid of him. Herod wanted to keep John around because he liked to listen to him even though he had no intention of actually following what he said. So as a compromise, verse 17 says, Herod arrested him and put him in prison and just left him there, even though he had done nothing wrong. And that's where you see that Herod's desire to please himself and please everybody else around him and be liked by everyone else around him brought him into some conflicting situations. See, you can't always please yourself and everybody else around you. As a people pleaser, Herod was inherently unstable. And at the end of this story, it says he was, verse 26, exceedingly sorry, or another translation says, in great distress. Throws a big birthday bash, and then he realizes he can't please everyone involved. And so he has to do something that he, he, he goes ahead and does something that he knows is flagrantly wrong out of his people pleasing. So that's the first person, Herod the people pleaser. Second, we see Herodias, the clever manipulator. Herodias knew what she wanted and she wouldn't rest until she got it. Again, Josephus affirms this. He says Herodias never wearied until she carried the day and made Herod her willing partisan. So here, she couldn't persuade Herod directly to do what she wanted, so she would figure out who else can I use to get what I want. She was smart, she was ambitious, and she was ruthless. Here, she uses the guests at Herod's birthday party because she knew that he wouldn't want to lose face in front of them and she used her own daughter. Her own daughter would do as she asked, and Herod wouldn't refuse her. See, Herodias is the clever manipulator who is willing to use whoever is around her to get what she wants. Then we see Herodias' daughter passively compliant. Herodias' daughter was young, she was beautiful, she was talented, and she would do whatever anyone asked of her. Herod and his drunken guests wanted her to come in and dance for them, sure, she'll do it. Her mom wanted her to ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter, sure. She went and asked for that very thing immediately and with haste. Now was she being used by Herod and his audience for their selfish pleasure? Most definitely. Was she being used by Herodias 
her own mother as a means to achieve her, murder, her Herodias murderous ends? Most certainly. She was most certainly an object of other people's evil designs, but she also let herself be used. She passively complied and didn't make any objection. And there's another group of people who are also passive spectators in this whole situation, namely Herod's guests, the gawking crowd. These guys were the guests at Herod's birthday party. Verse 22 says they were pleased to see Herodias' daughter dance. Verse 26 says because of Herod's oaths and his guests, he did what his stepdaughter asked for. These guys saw the whole thing unfold right before their eyes. They didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. But without them, Herodias' plan would not have worked. Consider how evil was advancing in this story. Herod, the people pleaser, wanting to please himself and have everybody else like him too. Herodias, who wanted what she wanted and was unhappy when someone got in her way and held a grudge and just waited for her opportunity to get John back. Her daughter, who did whatever people asked, who was young and vulnerable and wanted to keep her prospects open, and Herod's guests, who just looked on and gawked without raising any concern or objection. Those were the ingredients that in this situation led to the grisly murder of a righteous and holy man. Now here's the challenging part. If we're honest, we commit many of these same sins. We harbor, sometimes even justify, attitudes like this in our own hearts. People pleasing, wanting to please ourselves and have everybody else like us too, wanting what we want, not wanting anyone, not liking anybody else who gets in our way or challenges us, doing whatever people ask us because we want to keep our options open, or just looking on without raising any concern or objection. You see, evil is not just out there in the world around us. Evil is not just in some other people. The Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn had endured life in concentration camps under the dictator Joseph Stalin, and he wrote this. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, if only it were so simple. But he says it's not. He goes on, the line dividing good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Even in the best of hearts, there remains a small corner of evil that is not uprooted. Paul Tripp, in his book Parenting, wrote this along the same lines. The greatest danger to us and our children lives inside us and not outside us. It's the sin, iniquity, and transgression of our hearts that we are all born with that is the biggest moral danger to us. He goes on and he says, should we seek to protect our children from the evils of the surrounding culture? Of course, 
Do we willingly expose our children to everything out there? Of course not. But he says, you will never build walls of protection that protect your children from the danger that resides in their own hearts. Which the Bible says we are inclined to foolishness. Even from our birth. You see, as followers of Jesus, the first frontier that we are called to fight the battle against evil is to fight against the evil in our own hearts. That stubbornly resides there. To fight against the desire to please ourselves and want everybody else to like us too. The desire to just want what we want and not listen to challenges. The temptation to passively comply or to look on and gawk. Those are the very sins that led to the murder of John the Baptist. Those are also the very same sins that led to Jesus being arrested and mistreated and nailed to a cross. You see, there are two sections in Mark that aren't directly about Jesus. The first section is the first eight verses of Mark about John the Baptist's ministry and message that points forward to Jesus' ministry and message. And now here, John's suffering and death that points forward to Jesus' suffering and death that would happen at the end of Mark. You see, this story is not a random digression. This is not gratuitous violence that's put in here for no reason. It's an intentional foreshadowing of where Jesus' own life would end. It's a preview of the cross, of the dark and ugly day when evil seemed to triumph, when the Son of God was crucified by sinful people. That's what we see about how evil advances. But you know, Mark doesn't just put this story here to show us how evil advances. He also points us to three things that we should remember when evil seems to triumph. Three truths that help us stay anchored and stay on the path that God has for us in an ugly and bloody world. Number one, number, truth number one, truth is enduring. One of the early church fathers, John Chrysostom, said this, Herod cut off John's head, but he did not cut off John's voice. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, speaking of Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain, says this, Through his faith, though Abel died, he still speaks. That's also true of John the Baptist. I mean, think about it. Over the last 2,000 years, who has had a greater influence on history? John the Baptist or any of the other characters in this story? The answer is John the Baptist by far. Many people have been inspired by John the Baptist's bold preaching, calling people to repentance. Others have been struck by his humility. Always pointing, he always pointed people to Jesus and not to himself. He's the one who said in John chapter 3, Jesus must become greater and I must become less. My favorite story about John the Baptist is found in Luke chapter 7. It's where John is in prison, but he hasn't been executed yet, and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus a question. And the question is, are you the one who was to come or should we look for somebody else? 
You see, John was real. He was transparent. He was sitting there in prison and he was having some doubts and second thoughts, but he brought those doubts and questions to Jesus. And Jesus sent him a reply and encouraged him and said, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And he reminded John, yes, you pointed to me throughout your ministry and message. Stick with me. Yes, I'm the one you're hoping for. The truth hasn't changed. And here we see John remaining faithful even to the point of death. When John was sitting there, locked up in Herod's prison, he could never have imagined that 2,000 years later in a country he didn't, on a continent he didn't even know existed, that somebody would be preaching a sermon based on his life and his example and his faithfulness. There's no way that John could have imagined that we here would be considering the witness of his life. But he spoke the truth and he lived out the truth and truth is enduring. And the truth that John spoke and the truth that John lived has lasted long after his body decayed in the ground. So when evil seems to triumph, remember, truth is enduring. Speak the truth, live according to the truth that is in Jesus. Second thing to remember when evil seems to triumph, discipleship is costly. Verse 29. When John's disciples heard of it, heard of his death, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is the only honorable act in a completely dishonorable story. It's the only honorable thing that anybody does, of course, except for John, who sticks to his guns all the way to the end, right? Stays, speaks the truth before Herod. But it's the only honorable act that anybody else does. His disciples, his followers, come and give him the dignity of a decent burial. They had followed John in his life, and they were loyal to him even in his death. It would not have been a pleasant task to go and get his decapitated, dead body and give him a decent burial. But they did it. You see, to be a disciple of John didn't just mean following when it was easy and pleasant, but also following when it was unpleasant and hard. And the same is true for followers of Jesus. Notice that Mark puts this story of John's beheading in the middle of the mission of Jesus' apostles. To Jesus, verse 7 through 13, Jesus sent out the apostles. Verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus. So there's a story that Mark begins, and then it's interrupted, and then it ends. And remember, we saw that a couple weeks ago. Mark does this several times. He begins a story, and then it's interrupted, and then he concludes it. And the story in the middle always sheds light on the meaning of the story that's interrupted and then that he comes back to. And this story is not placed here because it happened that way chronologically. Verse 17 tells us this is a flashback. John has been beheaded previously. So it's very intentionally put here. But here's the thing. Mark wants us to see that discipleship, following Jesus, and mission, carrying out his mission in the world, is costly because he puts the example of John the Baptist 
right in the middle of it. He wants us to know discipleship or following Jesus is costly. It's not always easy and pleasant. It's sometimes hard. Following Jesus will lead us to hard places where we're called to do hard things, like John's disciples had to go and retrieve his dead body and give him a decent burial, even as they grieved that their leader had been brutally murdered. And following Jesus might even cost us our freedom or our earthly lives, like it cost John his freedom and his life. In 1937, when the Nazis were rising to power, a German pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a worthwhile read. In that book, he wrote this. The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a person, he bids him come and die. He wrote those words in 1937, and then he lived out those words over the next several years. In 1939, the, the Nazi, Nazis were advancing, and Bonhoeffer had a chance to escape Germany and go to the United States. And many of his friends said, get out while you can. You've got, a, you've got a plane ticket, you've got a boat ticket, however he got out. But he chose instead to return because he felt a responsibility to his country, to his fellow pastors, and to his people. He was involved, you see, in training pastors who didn't sign the oath of allegiance to Hitler. And so he went, kept on preaching and writing and training pastors and supporting the resistance against Hitler, and eventually he was arrested he was sent to a concentration camp where he was finally executed at the age of 39 in 1945. Bonhoeffer was right. Discipleship is costly. So when evil seems to triumph, remember that truth is enduring. Remember that discipleship is costly. But third, and don't ever forget this one, remember that resurrection is coming. Verse 16 Herod heard of Jesus and the mighty miracles that Jesus was doing, and he came to an interesting conclusion. Did you notice his conclusion? It's a little confusing when you read it. You sort of think, what is he saying? Herod's conclusion was, Jesus is John the Baptist, come back to life. Because Herod had previously executed John the Baptist, and Jesus' apostles are going out and preaching, and Jesus is going out and preaching and healing, and all this is happening, and, Jesus think, and, and Herod thinks... It's this guy who I killed, and he's come back to haunt me. And verse 14 indicates that other people believe that too. They thought Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to life. Now, was this true? No. Right? John and Jesus were never the same person. John baptized Jesus, after all. So anybody who knew anything about John or Jesus or their relationship with one another would not have come to this conclusion because it's factually erroneous. But Herod likely believed or worried that dead people might come back and haunt him. He had a guilty conscience, and he didn't know the facts, so he came to an irrational conclusion. Now, Herod was wrong about many things, but he was right about one thing. What he was right about is that John's death was not the end of John's story. Herod was right that resurrection was coming. Now in Mark, the story of John the Baptist ends here in verse 29, with his disciples taking his dead body and laying it in a tomb. But again, 
John the Baptist's end is a preview of Jesus' end. And what happens? Jesus is seized, like John the Baptist was seized. And he's, he's arrested and he's unjustly executed, like John was. And his disciples, in this case Joseph of Arimathea, took his body. It's almost the same words, Mark 15, 46. Taking him down, Joseph wrapped Jesus' body in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb. But the story doesn't end there. Does the story doesn't end with Jesus being laid in a tomb because after the Sabbath, on the third day, his followers came back to the tomb and found it empty because Jesus had risen. He had conquered death. He had come back to life again, never to die again. The, the Roman rulers who executed him and the Jewish leaders who condemned him could not make Jesus stay dead. And Jesus' resurrection is the promise that guarantees the future resurrection of everyone who trusts in him. All the Herods and Herodiases of the world will not have the last word. Because if we believe in Jesus, we belong to Jesus, we're his and he's ours forever, and because he lives, we too shall live. When Dietrich Bonhoeffer was being led out to his execution, his last words were these. This is the end. But that's not the end of the sentence. This is the end, but for me, he said, it's the beginning of life. You see, he knew that resurrection was coming. He knew that discipleship was costly, but he knew and he embraced that cost step by step along the way, but he knew that resurrection was coming, that though evil seemed to triumph, he knew that Jesus was stronger and Jesus would win in the end. So brothers and sisters, when evil seems to triumph, embrace the cost of following Jesus. It may be hard. Don't be surprised if it gets hard or if it has been hard. But remember the hope of the resurrection that we have in Jesus and stand firm in that hope. Truth is enduring, discipleship is costly, but resurrection is coming. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word, your word speaks to the world in which we find ourselves. So honestly and powerfully. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that your truth is enduring. We thank you for telling us in advance that following you will be costly. But we thank you that it is worth it. We thank you that it is worth it because you have triumphed over death. That on the other side of every death that we experience, in union with you, there will be a resurrection. So help us, we pray. Help us to be people who are faithful, like John the Baptist was, like his disciples were. Help us to be faithful to you in all that you call us to. And be strengthened by our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.